Today on Power Tips Unscripted, we're taping live from the Remodelers Advantage Extreme Business Makeover in Baltimore, Maryland. Our panel guests include financial guru Judith Miller, Fred Case Entrepreneur of the Year Award winner Michael Sari, business success strategist Doug Howard, and master of production Tim Fowler. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Hi, I'm Victoria Downing, and welcome to Power Tips Unscripted, where we talk about tips, tactics, and techniques to help you build a strong, profitable remodeling company. And I'm here with my co-host, Mark Harari. Yes, you are. So, you know, Mark, this is a cause of celebration, because this is a unique format. First time we're trying a live recording on Power Tips Unscripted. How many people we got out there? Awesome. Yeah, so that's exciting. And you know what else is exciting? What's exciting, Victoria? This is our 50th episode. It is. It's scripted. Big 5-0. The big 5-0. That's so, exciting. Yeah, so, you know, and again, um, I'm even, even, can I get more excited than that? Yes, because we have a panel of experts here today, and I don't know any place else except here at the Extreme Business Makeover event that you can have a panel like we have here today of industry experts that just have so much knowledge and experience. And we've got tons of great questions that have been submitted by our audience, all of you wonderful folks out there. So we're getting ready to dive in. Anything else from you over in the peanut gallery? Nope, let's do it. All righty, ready guys? Ready. All righty, so let me get started. You folks have been voting it up. You can still continue to vote up the questions as we go. Um, Okay, so here is one for Tim, Tim Fowler. What are some training platforms for training employees like project managers and people in the, in, let's say, you know, any employees, but product, project managers, production managers, and so on. Okay, so basically, uh, there are none. And that's one of the problems that we have in our industry is there, I shouldn't say there are none, but there are very few. Um, just a couple of things that come to mind. The remodeling show uh, tries real hard to have production training topics. JLC Live uh, does the same thing, whether it's in Providence or in Portland Road or Portland, Oregon. Um, But I I think that's a big challenge for us at RA and it's one of the things that we've committed to uh, is is creating training for particularly project managers and production managers. And so there'll be some of that coming out in our our marketing uh, providing that kind of thing for you. So basically what it means is you have to figure out what do I want these people to understand and it's probably segmental. So time management's a big thing. So maybe they go somewhere and just learn time management from a different perspective, but then apply it to what they're doing in project management. People management, how do you get the best out of other people? You might have to find a separate course. So I would recommend looking into community colleges, um, the uh, uh, other business programs in your community, and then maybe take the class with them so you can make the application to your business. I think that's probably the best we're gonna be able to do for now. But uh, push your uh, trade organizations to start uh, bringing some people in to do these kinds of things. And we are discussing earlier whether this is a shameless plug. I'm really good at training people. 
So, you know, get me in somewhere and I'll, I'll give your people some stuff they can really use for their, for helping your company. Thank you, Tim Fowler. Now here's one for Michael Sorry. Michael, you did a great presentation today. It was really exciting to learn how you grew your company so much and so successfully, not just the revenue side, but the net profit side and culture side and everything. Here's a great question for you. How do we get our team to care about company success and not just about getting a paycheck? People want to be part of a world they help create. In fact, Dale Carnegie is another resource, Tim. Dale Carnegie has great training for people who want to manage other people. But people want to be part of a world they help create. And so how I have uh, gotten people uh, to care about the success of the overall company, number one, you got to hire the right people. And sometimes, ladies, as you know, you have to kiss some frogs before you find your prince. But once you find the right people, get the right people on the bus, make it fun to be successful. So every month, because we don't have much labor in our company, every month when we close the WIP, the work in place document, we look at slippage and grippage on the jobs like we talked about earlier in public. So this person is looking at his job or her job and seeing the slippage. When you put it out in front of everyone, they want to be competitive. They want more grippage than the person next to them. And they really care about it. I don't share our profit and loss with the entire company. We don't do that. Some companies choose to. But by making it something that we're all focused on, being successful on the jobs, profitable, on time, happy client, you'll find that all of your staff wants to step up and do great. Thank you, Michael. That was awesome. Okay, this next one's for Doug Howard. Doug, you as a director of consulting for Remodelers Advantage, you've gotten into some really cool stuff with the clients that you work with. One of the things that you're a master of is cash flow, right? If you really grabbed hold of that and have helped a lot of folks. So in terms of cash flow, the question specifically is what not to do, what recommendations, but let's go both sides. What not to do, what to do to maintain a healthy cash flow. So I think the biggest thing is you have to have a way of tracking it and you have to realize that because it takes a certain period of time to get a new job, if you sign a job today, actually into production, whatever that window of time is, that's how long you have to be able to look for your cash flow. So if it's 12 weeks or four, 15 weeks or whatever it is, I'm a big believer in looking at it week by week during that period of time. And you don't want to miss the signs that are obvious. If we're using the deposit from the next job to pay for materials from the last job, that's a problem. If we're cash flowing, but it's only because we have a significant amount of overbillings, and we look at how much we have on deposit and realize we have cash, but it's really our customer's cash, that's a problem. So you want to really look at some key numbers to say, okay, is the cash flowing? And then you want to leave yourself as much latitude as possible. You know, I'm not a big believer in debt. I like the idea of a line of credit to be able to get that flexibility because it's hard to get when you really need it. I also believe you want to establish terms with your vendors, even if you don't need them right now. Uh, and communication is the biggest piece. You have got to, if things get tight, if things get challenging, you have got to communicate with the people around you. It's when they don't hear from you or they try to read into the situation what's going on. And that's not only your banker and your vendors, but your employees as well. If there's going to be stress on the organization, we map it out, come up with a game plan and work our way back. In most situations, a profitable, profitable business can work around that. It's when we find out on Thursday that we don't have enough payroll for next Wednesday and then, you know, don't have the pipeline of work that we need. That's when we get ourselves into difficulty and have to start making short-term decisions that actually make the cash flow situation 
worse in the long run. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, and again, folks, you can continue to put questions in as they come up, and we'll be voting them on up along with the rest. Judith, now, as a financial guru, you've, been, you've seen the numbers and the financial reports of companies for years and years and years. What is the profit margin that a successful remodeling company should be hitting? I'd say it's minimum of 30%, but I've seen up to 45. Net gross. Gross. Okay. When, when you say profit margin, I always think of gross because I think of overhead as being relatively fixed for the next year. You're probably aware of whether or not you're going to be moving, whether or not you're going to be buying new computers. You can pretty much predict right now, or you should be able to, exactly what your overhead or close to it is going to be for the next year. It's your gross profit margin that you don't necessarily know about. You don't know if those jobs are going to go away or they're going to actually sign. So I think you should be hitting a 30% gross margin minimum. And most people don't start out there. Now, I don't believe you can go back if you're not hitting 30% or if you're not charging that much, which is about a 50% markup, right? If you're not hitting that, you can't necessarily go back and immediately say, well, they told me that I had to charge this much. Because what you need is you need market reputation to be able to support that. People have to be able to see your value in the higher prices that you might be considering over the next period of time. Now, let me say this about that. If you can't raise your prices now, when can you? Very good. Good point there, Judith. Now, and again, we've got this awesome market. If you haven't done it before, if you're not that margin now, you should be. Get on the bandwagon and do it now while the market's so hot. Um, Mark Harari, as our chief marketing officer, you know tons about marketing, did a couple of great presentations here. This one's for you. Are there marketing tips for a company that receives the majority of their leads from word of mouth referrals and the architect bidding process? So yeah, I saw that on the on the sheet. I'm assuming that that was referring to more like how to keep that going. Because the first thing I'd say is diversify. If you've got 80, 90% of your leads are coming from referrals, you don't want 80 to 90% of anything coming from anything. You want to kind of spread the wealth so you're not all eggs in one basket. But to answer the way I read the question, um, the number one thing is to stay top of mind. So you have to continue to email them once a month, twice a month, weekly if you can. Always send them new things that are happening. Here's the projects we're doing. Here's something new with our company. Top of mind, top of mind, top of mind, because you can talk to them once, make a call, and then three, three weeks, five weeks later, you're gone. And then they're not gonna remember to refer you. So as often as you can contact them, do that. That's the number one thing I do. Great, thank you so much, that's awesome. Michael, I'm gonna give you this one. This is, this is an interesting one. As the owner, I am often sent out to look at jobs that are a bad fit. What is a proven system for office staff to qualify leads over the phone? And how do we disqualify them without sounding rude or making someone feel insignificant? Uh, so we heard why, 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 why earlier today, meaning that you want to find out why they're a bad fit, what didn't work. When you're there at the lead, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do. But please, don't get happy when you go back to the office. Stay mad. Sit down with your staff and figure out, who's our client? What do we want to do? What kind of projects are we good at? Perhaps better at than anybody else in our area. Once you figure that out, what are the types of those clients? And I'll tell you, for us, young families that are expanding, same-sex couples, 
and couples that are getting ready to retire are three types of people. So one of the first things you'll get if you call our office and get Pam on the phone, she, you want to talk to her about a new project, she's going to talk to you about who you are, who your significant other is, and if there are four-legged or two-legged children in the house. That tells you a lot about, and, and the floodgates open so that you can figure out who you want to work for and then you can never go on one of those calls again. Okay, great, good. Thank you so much. Um, let's see, Tim, this is a good one. Now, you had a podcast on uh, t the Tim Fowler Show where you talked a lot about the money lost from things like lumberyard runs. So this question is about that. What's the solution to the money lost in lumberyard runs? Okay, so the critical thing is to really find out what the real problem is. And so if you ask the question why five times, you know, and, and or even three or four times, you get down to the real issues. And so there's a lot of reasons why people leave job sites to go pick up stuff. Some of it's because they don't plan well. That's probably a big part of it. So training your project managers and your lead carpenters to be good daily planners. In other words, a sit down that says, two weeks from now, I'm gonna need the framing lumber. What is it I'm gonna need? I need to order that. Or a week from now, I'm installing windows and I haven't heard anything from the office about them even being ordered yet. And so I better check on that because obviously it'll, it'll catch me in a bind. But that's one reason. But the other reason why people go to the lumberyard a fair amount is the indecisions up front. So if there's a lot of decisions that are just being made on the fly, then people can't plan ahead. So if you're backing up, you have to look at all those different reasons and, and figure out what what to do. Now, I do want to emphasize the idea of fun. Somebody, uh, you know, the culture of a company being fun. And I know a lot of companies that just had a lot of fun with this lumberyard thing. And so they measured how many lumberyard trips were made in one month. They got the team together again. It wasn't the boss saying, you have to do this. It got the team together and said, what can we cut it down to? And then we said, then they said, if we do that, what would you like to get from it? And then they set up a game and every week they had a scorecard and they broadcast the score and the team, and it wasn't expensive. Uh, one company, it was just some kind of special lunch cooler, you know, and they saved like a hundred grand and they bought everybody a special lunch cooler. You know, that, that was worth it, right? And another company, it was a trip to the local beer uh, hall to try craft beers. And so it, have some fun with it. Don't just make it a pain but try to find a way to get the team to care about that and, and to move forward. Okay, great, thank you so much, Tim. Okay, Judith, ready for your next one. How do you move from a late stage two company, excuse me, delegating most non-sales, non but still training, to a stage three? We're stuck. Well, that's a really good question, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. So what I'd say, I'd say this about that. First of all, remember the layout of the functions that each company has to perform? I had five, Michael had I think seven. Take either one of them. And then evaluate the efficiencies of each of those. Where is the company stuck? Is the company stuck in marketing? Are you not getting enough good leads? Are you stuck in your sales process, not converting those good leads into good contracts? 
Is your estimating bad? What's your company reputation? I would measure those, each one of them, and maybe even ask your employees or ask some clients, how are we doing in these areas? And then I would start narrowing it down to the one that's going to have the biggest impact on moving the company forward in terms of volume, in terms of job size. You know, I ask permission to add on. Once you figure out what's weak, write the job description for the person, for the position that you're hiring for. If you have a job description, hopefully set up with things that they're doing and things that they're accountable to do, key accountabilities, maybe three or four or five things that must be done so that person is successful in that job. Most of us, the first thing that we're going to do to get out of stage two and into stage three is going to be to hire somebody in production, either a project manager or a production manager or a lead carpenter. What's that person's job? Write it out piece by piece. What's your day look like? What's your week like? What's your month like? Those two should get you unstuck. Great. Thank you so much, Michael, for adding in there. So, Doug, how do you know whether you're training somebody who just isn't capable or it just it isn't a fit for the job? Well, I think it's easier if you have more than one person that's in the job. You, know, you start to look at it and say, you know, if someone's struggling in a job, you'll see that in their performance. If everybody's struggling in the job, it's probably more of a process issue or a structure issue or how the job's uh, defined. The other thing is, I think you have to have clear measures. You know, you have a job description. You really have to have key measures as to what that performance looks like. A lot of times when I'm working with folks, they'll say, well, I really need an office manager that can um, get things the way I want them to be or get things in a format that I need them. And that's very vague. And so we start to get to the point of, you know, uh, what does that mean in terms of what are the reports, what are the measures, uh, what measure of accuracy, time frames, those kinds of things. The more measurable it is, I think the easier it is, first of all, to correct uh, the behavior if it's correctable, but also to see if any progress is being made. The biggest challenge, I think, is when you have someone making progress and feeling better about things, but making progress at a pace that is nowhere near where you need them to be, to be that person you need them to be. So I always like to look at distance from the goal, not just improvement, because you really need performance at the level that it needs to be at if you're going to be able to delegate or if you're going to be able to rely on their um, information. Okay, anybody else want to add on that one? That's a juicy one. Well, I just would uh, say that I think one of the best things to do is set up a 30 or a 60 day uh, assessment idea, like these are the goals for the next 30 days and see if they meet them. Uh, I believe Michael said earlier, they probably generally don't, but at least it's a quantifiable kind of thing that you, and you've given them a chance, so to speak. You might make it 60 days depending on what your resources are for that. And the last thing I'd like to say is take miscellaneous and other things as might occur out of any job description you've ever made. And why would that be, Judith? Because that means you can throw anything you want at that person <laughs> and you expect them to do it well. It's I was sort of like clear. that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thanks guys. Okay, Mark, here's another one for you. Talking about competitors' pricing. How are we to really know what our competitors' price is without spending days, weeks, time which could be spent on marketing, managing, selling, etc.? Hmm. So that's interesting. You know what? I'm going to put a pin in that. I'd like to ask our resident 
panel member first, and then I'll tag on to him. Uh, Michael, well, how do you know what your competitors' prices are? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it does not matter. They are not me, and I am not them. And if somebody wants to drive a Kia, let them. That's not the kind of car we are. I, exactly right. Because what does it what does it matter if? You didn't get the job. Is it because you were too high priced and you didn't provide that unique selling proposition, right? Because they're basing it on price. If you were too low, you probably got the job. So you know what the best price was. So it, like Mike said, it doesn't matter. Okay, great. Thank you so much. There was a particular one here that I wanted to get to Tim. And just give me a second while I do a quick look, look it up. Um, and in the meantime, I'm going to jump to Michael again. Michael, what kind of time frame should be given to customers for making selections? Oh, Lord. Um, so, so I'm going to answer this for kitchens because I think that's something that we often all have in common. And I will tell you that what is currently in our process and may not stay forever is that when the time comes and we have a schematic design that's been approved by the client, for us, that's after their second design meeting. We have an approved schematic design. Either I or I and our designer Pam or just Pam takes the client shopping. I am not going to send them to the wolves at whatever supplier and go, go pick a sink, go pick a faucet, go pick. That's just, I think that's mean personally. So we guide them, we ask them to book an entire morning, and so. Uh, they meet us usually at the tile place at 7.30, and by lunchtime, we're finished with selections. Sweet, sweet. All right, Tim, I found this great one for you. Ready? Ready. Buddy? Ready. All right. How are you assured that project managers are on the job sites, on time, not starting the day late at the doctor's office, lumber runs, etc., and working efficiently without you being at every job to check on them? Okay, so first of all, if you have that worry, fire your project managers and get people you can trust. Okay? Now, I say that a little bit facetiously, but I'm, I'm really serious. This, is, this has to be a trust business. Now, the other side of that could be institution of an electronic time card with GPS tracking. Now, that sounds really negative, but a number of companies, really, really good companies, have done this. They work through the little bit of, um, you know, sort of angst that the team has, but they really have been effective. And so, for example, if I'm supposed to be on a job site, I know that my production manager can look in there and see where I am. So I'm a little more accountable. I feel a little bit more like I, I have to make sure I'm honest about that. The other side of it is, is that anybody in the company can look and see where I'm working today. And they don't have to go you know, ask, hey, where's Tim today and, and what's he up to? So that's another aspect of it. There's also this idea which I think maybe needs to be playing into the millennial side of things. And that is, is that we aren't going to keep track of everybody, but we are going to expect a certain level of work. And so we're not going to say you have to be there at 7.30. If you can start your day at 8.30, but you're going to work till 5.30. And so there's some flexibility 
with the hours. Those of us my age is like, no, 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 dude, we're all on the same schedule, right? But I think we do have to start thinking a little bit more in those terms so that we, you know, have that flexibility. So that would be, I think that's about what I can say about that. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right, Doug, here's one for you. I can get my little hands on it here. What is the right stage for a company to hire a general manager? And you know this has been a hot topic for a lot of our members over the last six months or so. Well, I think it probably comes in later on when they're really trying to get the owner's role better defined to be really just the management of the company. Um, so, you know, if, if the, if the <laughs> business owner is very heavily involved in sales, has a strong production manager, things are probably in good stead. Uh, and, and maybe vice versa, but there is a point where if the owner really wants to be able to focus on the strategic things, the financial aspects, the transition, developing folks, those kinds of things, it's hard to also be the primary salesperson and not have someone really coordinating day-to-day -day operations. So I think that's about where it comes in. All right, great, thanks. Um, Michael, there was one here for you I want to grab. And it had to do with, I'm going to paraphrase, I can't quite find it exactly on my little device here. How do you and your wife, what, what are some of the strategies you use to work together and yet not let it consume your entire life? Okay, this is hard. <laughs> this is very hard. Um, the first is you have to realize that if you want to have a home life, it needs to be home at home and work at work. Uh, the second is we meet every single week and we call it Sori Summit. And we usually go to lunch and historically it's been on Fridays. We had to move that for some other things. But we go to lunch and usually about 90 minutes or two hours and we get, so we have two children, a 10 year old and a 12 year old. So there's no way we're doing it after dinner or nowhere we're doing it at home or on the way to basketball or something like that. So it's usually an hour and a half or two hours where it's just the two of us, no phones, no nothing, and usually a long and never ending to-do list, either of items for work, and some we even thought about doing two, one for personal and one for office. We currently have just one. But that carved out time every week, 90 minutes, where we are focused on the things that need to get done as a couple, it really, really helps. And the other thing is, um, more for the men than the women is that guys we're we're often wrong. <laughs> we're Let's often put that wrong. on t-shirts, shall we? <laughs> we are often wrong and uh, and we are often slow to see things that the feminine recognizes much more quickly. So the quicker that I can get off my high horse about all the things that I know I'm just so right about and just consider another point of view the faster and less painful these conversations have to be. Hope that helps. Thank you very much, that was awesome. Mark, here's one for you. If the business is named after the company owner, does that negatively impact the company's saleability or other exit strategy from a marketing point of view? No. <laughs> oh, thank you, would you like to elaborate? <laughs> I, I thought we were trying to be succinct here. Yeah. yeah, no, it doesn't make a difference. You can, companies have, I don't know, it's not coming to my head right now, but there's a number of companies that are named after someone that aren't owned by that person anymore. Charles Schwab. There you go. Charles yeah. Schwab. They didn't change it to Steve Jones. Yeah. 
You know, one of our members is named Jack Miller, and I just think it's such a great name, and I was, he was asking me that question, and I sent him the website of a, a, a particular fancy-schmancy golf shoe, and the company was named, like, Jack Jones, I think, actually, was the company. And, you know, it, I'm in total agreement. I don't, think, I don't think it makes any difference. You can make it a brand all in and of itself. Yeah, at, at some point, the name becomes the brand, and it's not the person anymore. So, yep. Okay, Judah, is it possible to be a stage three business in which the owner's primary role is not sales? That's a really good question, and nobody's ever asked me, and I don't think so. That's my definition of stage three, is the owner does, is primarily doing sales. Okay, all right. No other options? Could they be the production manager? You know, and... The Harvard Business Review article? I don't remember. That was in 83. I don't remember last year. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll be glad to check it out and get back to you. All right, great. Another podcast waiting. Great. All right, Doug, how important is the business plan, and how often should it be rewritten? Uh, it's a great question. I think the traditional idea of a business plan, sort of an academic business plan, is probably not terribly helpful, nor is it terribly important. A business model that gets updated every year, that integrates with your accounting, that looks at your finance plan, your operating plan, and your marketing plan is incredibly important. Um, and again, you know, to do a strategic plan over a multi-year period of time, update it each year, share it with the right folks, and make sure it integrates with the accounting, makes it a really useful tool and a guide along the way. All right, good, great, thank you so much. All right, the, the big, the most popular question was voted up by the most people here. And anybody can comment on this, just let me know who wants to go first. How do you choose estimating software? Judith, you going first? You betcha, I love this topic. <laughs> the first thing I would say is don't choose Excel. You heard me say that. The second thing I would say is do a survey of the people you know in your local NARI or uh, NBA or something like that. And the third thing I would say is set a year-long goal to make that decision and make sure you get production and everybody else involved in it. And lastly, I would say choose a champion or let a champion come to the forefront because I can't tell you how many people I've seen and how many people I've tried to train on estimating software, specifically Master Builder, who didn't have a champion and the owner said, I'm going to take it on and they never had enough time to do it well and they got confused as to what production might need and what sales might need and it was a failure and a champion. One person who says, ah, this is going to be complicated, I know, but I'm going to figure out how to do it best for us because I know you need this, this, and this. Do not just buy it and start to use it and expect it to work well. You mean one person within the organization? Within the organization is a champion for it because it's a complicated process. Give it a year. And the other thing, last thing I'd say about that is never expect it to do everything you've ever thought anything should ever do. There will always be something that will let you down in your software. All right, Tim. So I'd just like to say, just be sure it's customizable if that's a word because I've seen too many people grab something off the shelf and then their pricing isn't accurate to their company. And that's, the, that's my biggest beef with estimating is we price stuff as if we live in a vacuum as opposed to my people cost me $25 a square foot, therefore 
I'm putting $25 a square foot in there. So just make sure it's customizable to your company and, and that you do that. Because you, it'll, I know one company that's put out of business because all they did was take it off the rack and it, it didn't work. So. so I'd say one last thing is that once you make the decision, have the courage to stick with it. We've used a software since 2006 and it's, that was version, I think one or two and we're on version, who knows now, but it works and it works for us and each successive group of production folks have to, has to adopt it, but it's worked for us for a long time. Let me see here, there's so many good ones. Oh, here's no one for Tim. What's a reasonable end of job percentage of profit bonus range for a project manager lead carpenter? Okay, so I was hoping I'd get asked this question because I've been looking at it for a couple hours. Um, so one of the things that everybody should remember is that money is not the primary motivator for your field staff in general. So don't count on a bonus system being a motivator. What I like to think of it as is a way that does help a little bit of motivation, but it's more about saying thank you for doing a great job. So my current thinking right now is based off of a book called uh, The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. And if I understood the book right, and even if I didn't, this is still my thinking, but um, the company needs X amount of money to stay alive. And I suggested earlier that the 10% doesn't last very long. Uh, and so you might say, we have to keep an 8% net or a 9% net or something like that. And then I'm willing to share all the rest of it. And my current thinking right now is you share it with everybody in the company. Again, blending production and sales and marketing everybody together. And, uh, and so what you do with that then, now there's a couple of different ways to approach that. In a podcast we just recently did, uh, our guest said it should be shared evenly. So if there's 10 people, you just divide it by 10. So the laborer gets the same as the lead carpenter. My current thinking is it's based on pay scale. So as a percentage, the lead carpenter gets a little more than the laborer does, but the laborer still gets some money. And so that's what I would encourage you to do, is to think about that. What, I, what do I have to keep in the business? And then how do I um, just share the rest of it with the team? I do have an Excel spreadsheet that does some calculations for you. If you want, I'll share that with you. Uh, send me an email and, and it's got some instructions and things like that as well, so. You know what, Tim? I bet you we can put that in the show notes. We could. Think? All right. Sure. So please get that to us. We'll get it in the show notes. And all of you listeners out there, you thousands and thousands of listeners out there, can also download it from hundreds, the show. hundreds of thousands. <laughs> hundreds of thousands. All right, Doug, give us a few tips for those people who are getting into developing an accurate budget for the first time. And then we also want to know if there are any resources or templates they could use to help them develop that budget. Sure. Um, so, first of all, to get a budget done really should not take more than an hour or two. So folks that are kind of intimidated by that process, as long as you've got kind of the right tools to do it and the right information, it shouldn't be that daunting. We have a budget template RA does that I think we have online and we can certainly share that as well. What I like to do is I start out with the 12 month report from QuickBooks from the year before month by month. Print it out, export it to Excel, that becomes the starting point. 
Then once we know what the overhead is and what our objectives are for profit for the year, we build up to what gross profit we need to be at. And then we start looking at history on jobs. I like to look at what we have in the pipeline so far. So if it's December, we should have some things that are going into the new year. You know, how much of the first couple of months that we can account for. And then what's the differential that that revenue and profit margin have to be? Usually what I'll do is look at two or three scenarios, one that's kind of a flat scenario, one that says that sales will make up the difference, one that says profit margin improvement will make up the difference, and it usually ends up being some sort of a blended uh, concept from those three. And from that point, you should have a budget, you spread it out over the 12 months, and the important thing is once you get it done, get it back into QuickBooks so you can get comparison to budget reports uh, as you go. All right, good, great, thanks, some great tips. All right, Michael, this is a question about markup and margin. Okay. Do you use the same markup on renovations, remodeling, that you do on new homes? No. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? <laughs> um, That's my joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, so first of all, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what we tell our clients, which is the truth. We are shooting to make an eight to 10% net profit. So Mr. Homeowner, Mrs. Homeowner, every dollar you give us, 92 cents of that dollar is going into your home. So first, when we talk about margin and markup, this is not about fat cats and driving a Lamborghini. This is about, we need to run a successful business that's gonna make it through the next recession, and that's why we're charging you these prices. So if what I said earlier about the Kia sound a little thick to you, I just want to want to clarify that that's why we do that. That said, projects that are under about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, we mark up at one point six seven, which gives us a forty percent gross profit. Good for you. Things over eight fifty, we are experimenting with less. We're getting more and more of those projects, and so I'm working with some of my peers in RA about what margin works for us and allows us to make a good net profit. 1.67 when your hard costs are 1.5 million dollars is a little crazy and so we're trying to figure out what makes sense so that we can make sure we stay profitable does that answer your question that's awesome and you know not only is that awesome but that is a question i've been getting so many people asking me lately how do you respond to homeowners who are asking you what your markup is they don't even know what that means half the time there's no reason to even go there so the verbiage that you just shared is perfect to respond to those kinds of customers. And really, the first question I'd be saying is, why do you ask, right? And then I might tell you some wacky thing that had nothing to do with your markup. So that was awesome, thank well, you so much. Not only that, but the 92 cents of every dollar, what a way to frame it yeah. so that you feel like all the money's going into this project. I mean, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So good job that's awesome. there. No wonder you're the entrepreneur of the year. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you earned that. All right, Mark. If you were the owner of one of these remodeling companies, what are the three most cost-effective and effective methods of marketing you would implement first? Or second, third, top three? <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's a loaded question. Gee, um, you know, it's so it's, it's part of a process. You do a marketing plan and all that stuff. I don't know, if you just want to talk about tactics, um, I'm, I'm all about the interwebs, man. Get that website rolling, start marketing it, get the lead gen machine built, 
I mean, that's where it's at, you know, and it's just not going anywhere anytime soon. And the millennials are moving up. I mean, this just that's first, second, and third for me. That's the focus. You got the um, the referral based stuff that you always have to do. You got to build your list, you know, and something you guys, a lot of people don't realize, but if you have a list of prospects, that adds value to your company. I don't know if you're looking to sell or maybe 20, 30 years down, but if you're including a marketing list, we have 55,000 local residents in a list, that's value to a buyer. Like you've got a built in stream. So build a list, man, and, and start marketing to that list. Those are, those are my top. I don't know if that was one, two, or nine, but those are my top ones. <laughs> right, you covered it good. Thank you. Okay, Judith, how do you, what do you think about um, personality assessments? If, you know, tell us a little bit about what they are and how are they important? Are they useful? What's your thoughts on using personality assessments? Victoria, you should be answering this because you're certified in DISC. I love personality assessments. I initially thought they were woo-woo. I don't believe in astro astrology. I don't believe in palm readers. I believe I'm a scientific person. I do read my horoscope every Sunday. But that being said, I am sold on DISC profiling that we use in Remodelers Advantage because I think it helps separate personality types as well as ways to work together effectively that we might not understand about people until we did this. It's really a simple take. It may or may not be highly valid, but it's, I found it very useful over the last 15 years to know if someone's a high D, a dominant personality, they're going to need to be treated differently than somebody's a high C, a compliant personality, more like the accountant type. And you can tell based on language, and you can tell based on uh, body uh, language too. So if you talk to somebody who's like this, they're a D or an I. Or if you talk to somebody who keeps their arms close to their side and they never modulate their voice above this, they are an S or a C. And those things are important because now I know theoretically how to treat and how to talk to that person and work with them better. I like them. Great. Thank you, Judith. Tim? So one of the things that I think really works for them is when you're hiring new people. So one of the concepts in hiring is study your best people. So who is it that is your best project manager? What are they like? Do a profile on them. Then as you're getting ready to hire other people, do a profile on them. Now they're not gonna match up identically, but at least you get some idea, is this person going to work within the culture and the profile of our company? And I've seen companies do a great job of this, and then I've seen the opposite where they gone to all that trouble and they said, no, I still like this person and it just failed miserably. So uh, that's one of the great benefits I see is you can get a, a objective measure of somebody's personality based on what really works for your company already. All right, great, thank you so much. All right, here's one for Michael. This is a big one, so I may have to ask, ask you to be as succinct or pick one part of it, but. How did Kaizen and Charette implementation impact your project size and margin gains directly or indirectly? Big one. <laughs> okay, so Kaizen is how we take the production process and the design process and make it as efficient and use as few resources as possible. So that brought our costs down for those things that we applied Kaizen to. Production became more effective, 
design became more effective as a result of Kaizen. <clears throat> For the charrette process, because we had designs to show to clients that were from multiple perspectives, and I'll tell you what happens in every single one of those meetings is that if they're looking at three or four or perhaps even five incredibly inspirational designs, what do they do? I want this from A and I want that from B and I'll take this from C and I'll take this from D and I don't care what the ballpark was, I want it. So our job sizes grew. Okay, awesome, that was a very succinct, good job. Vic, I, I have a question for the entire panel. Do you, what would that be? Are you all ready for the lightning round? Here's a Remodeler's Advantage Lightning Round. It's a trap. Yeah, it's a trap. Okay. You guys ready? Ready. Ready. Let's put 90 seconds on the clock. Well, we're going to put whatever it takes. Let's do this. Michael, what's your favorite business book and why? Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. We just read it as a company, and it really helped our culture a lot. Great. Doug, if you weren't a business consultant for Remodeler's Advantage, what would you be doing? I believe I would be a college history professor or a spokesperson for NASA. <laughs> I believe that too. Judith, what are you not very good at? I hate to say this, but I'm not very good at long term. So I'm really good at projects-based work, and I love to get people's books up and running, and I love to do analysis of them. But I'm not very good at saying, yeah, I'm going to work with you and your staff for two and a half years to be able to get this out. I just fall asleep. Good to know yourself. Good to know yourself. Tim, your room, your desk, or your car, which do you clean first? It's got to be the desk since the other two never get cleaned. <laughs> Good to know. Tim, do you sing in the shower? No. <laughs> Judith, have you ever been told you look like someone famous, and if so, who? When I was really little, it was Doris Day, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> Doug, would you rather fight a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Easily a hundred duck-sized horses. <laughs> Do you want to say why? Michael, what's the most unusual thing I'd find in your refrigerator? Uh, some Japanese delight that my family sent over that I can't even pronounce and wouldn't care to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Time's up. Thank you all. So I want to say thank you to our wonderful panel, Tim Fowler, production master, Judith Miller, financial guru, Doug Howard, the fixer, director of consulting, and Michael Sari, president of TriVista USA, and uh, Fred Case, Entrepreneur of the Year Award winner. Let's give them a big hand. Thank you all for all the great questions and for voting them up, and I hope you got a lot out of this. So, I'm Victoria Downing. And I'm Mark Harari. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. This has been another episode of Power Tips Unscripted, the remodeler's guide to business. Visit www.remodelersadvantage.com to learn more about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program. There you can also find information about our business consulting services, upcoming live events, and much more. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. It's a beautiful day.
It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful day. 